This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. Hi everyone, the two of us are away travelling this week, so we decided to share one of our favourite episodes from last year. Joined by HuffPost reporter Roweda Abdelaziz and Priya Kishner, author of the fabulous cookbook, Indianish. This episode is about celebrating all those immigrant parents out there and all the ways that they shape our travel experiences. With July 4th just around the corner, it felt like the perfect time to give it another listen and honour the wonderful melting pot that is the USA. Hi, this is Women Who Travel, a podcast from Condé Nast Traveller. I'm Lale Arikoglu and with me, as always, is Meredith Carey. Hi. And today we're joined by one podcast alum, I was going to say regular, but <laughs> alum, the lovely Roweda Abdelaziz, a reporter at Huffington Post. Hello. And Priya Krishna, a regular contributor to the New York Times and Bon Appetit and the author of the upcoming cookbook, Indianish. Hi. And she's wandering around New York, I would imagine, yeah. based on the video <laughs> we've got. Yes, I'm in Long Island City. Perfect. I was trying to figure out like where that arch that I can see you on is. It's a parking lot. (laughs) Exactly where you should be recording a podcast. Um, Amazing. Well, I guess I'm the spectator here because this week we are talking about something that actually came up when Rowena was on the podcast all those many months ago, which has to do with traveling for your family when you are a first generation immigrant to the place where you live. You guys all fit in that category. I am just from Texas. So (laughs) so I would love to just start off. You know, we talk about our moms, Lala and I do all the time on this podcast, but I would love to hear, I guess, starting with you, Roweda, about your parents, about where they're from and why they moved to Jersey. Yeah, out of all places. <laughs> um, so both my parents, my mom and dad, are native Egyptians. They were born, raised, graduated, um, they spent, well, normally I say most of their lives, but now it's coming pretty close. But what I have in my head is their entire lives out in Egypt and then they immigrated over to the U.S. My father came first and then my mother shortly after in the early 90s, um, just a few months before I was born actually. And they've been there ever since. Moved around in Jersey, but been here ever since. And Priya, what about your parents? My parents, they, well, when when they first immigrated to America, they're from India originally. They came to New Hampshire and eventually settled down in Texas so that my mom and her brothers could all be together. So I grew up with this amazing extended Indian family in Dallas and it was it was the, the best thing 
I first connected with Priya because she wrote about my favorite restaurant in Dallas, hands down, Mi Casina. Um, and yep. I was an immediate fangirl <laughs> for making this like slightly trashy but perfect um, it's amazing. Restaurant in <laughs> Dallas, make it into Bon Appetit. <laughs> I just thought was the ultimate. And Lala, you've talked about your dad quite yeah. frequently also on the podcast, but give us a little roundup. Of- I mean, so my mom's British, but my dad is Turkish. And I mean, at this point, he spent the majority of his life in the UK. He moved over to London for architecture school when he was 19 and never left He managed to get to 30 before he had to go back to Turkey and do his military service. And by that point, he was considered so over the hill, he only had to do six weeks (laughs) and then promptly returned to London. (laughs) Now he like talks about it with a sort of misty-eyed nostalgia. And the other day he got caught out when he talked to someone who actually like served several years in the military. Well, that's the thing. Like, what can you do in six weeks? He got reprimanded for being vain (laughs) and had his hair gel taken away from him. And I know that he became very good at target practice. So a lot, apparently. So a lot. He learned a lot. And then he went back to Notting Hill. So, But I think, um, you know, one of the reasons why we thought this would actually warrant like a whole podcast episode is that when you have a parent from a different place, the whole way that you travel as a child is really quite different from your peers a lot of the time because there is this draw to keep going back to this country. You have family there, you know, your parents or a parent has like a deep attachment to that place and obviously want to keep some sort of connection there. And, you know, obviously I don't have children at this point in my life. I'm just like, you know, faffing about in New York. (laughs) But, um, you know, it's really important to me already. I can understand my dad's pull to go back to Turkey so much. It's very important for me to go back to London as much as I can. I can't go a year without at least going once for Christmas. I totally understand it. And going to Turkey when I was like before the age of like 10 was like a huge part of my life. And I know, Roweda, you went back to Egypt a lot growing up. Mm -hmm. What was that like? What were your earliest memories? So that nostalgia that you were talking about of wanting to go back, I feel like is so important and is so self-evident when it comes to immigrant families. Like when my parents first came, I think they came with a very temporary mindset. Um, I know a lot of my friends who have immigrated from other countries, their parents are the same thing. It's like we come to America um, for a better opportunity, primarily financially, raise our kids there, make sure they're all good and settled, and then we're going back. So I think that mindset kind of trickled down from my parents to mine in a sense. Not that the U.S. was temporary, but then I always saw myself, okay, this idea of going back meant that there was going to be some period of my life where I'd be living there. I didn't know what that meant in terms of whether it'd be my teenage years or if I was married or when raising kids, but I was just like, okay, I understand their connection and therefore my connection was instilled, I think, at a very, very young age. So much so that we did move back. So for the first 10 years of my life, my parents made it a point to spend one summer here in the U.S. so we can get close to our cousins here and then spend one summer abroad back in Egypt. And it was the entirety of the summer. We were leaving like days after schools ended, um, sometimes the same day or even like a few days before and literally making back just in the nick of time. So it was the whole three or four months there. And so we did this for... Um, the first 10 years until my parents, that nostalgia really kicked in. And they were like, you know what, we're going to actually move back to Egypt. Um, And so I remember being 10 years old and my parents sitting me down and they said, um, I was the oldest of the, I'm the oldest of my siblings. And so they didn't really have a conversation with my siblings who were just like two, three, four years old. 
and they were like, okay, we're going to move. We're going to like sell everything. We're going to sell our home and we're going to move. Like, what do you think about this? And I was just like, awesome. I'm down. (laughs) There wasn't this fear of like going to a different place because I had spent so much time there. So my parents were just like, you're going to go to a new school. You're going to be with different families. All I could think of is like, the beautiful beaches in the Middle East and the great food and all the fun. I think all the school and all the other things didn't hit me to the point where I was just like, I love this idea. I'm going to hop on a plane, which I've been on plenty of times. And it's going to be fantastic. And I feel like more of my friends were shocked for me. Like, you're moving to an entirely different country. You're moving to the Middle East. This is also like post 9-11. Like, do you really want to go there? And I'm like, yeah, the mango juice there is awesome. (laughs) Like... I love this country. It's going to be amazing. And I think it wasn't until living there for almost five years that it hit me. I'm like, whoa, like this is a big life change. But I didn't have that much time to get used to it because of my parents then moved back. And so it was like an identity crisis, yes, and very confusing. But I think that experience specifically really fortified like my experience on travel and like took away any fear that it had because I did it when I was so young. And Priya, being surrounded by your mom's family, did you guys spend a lot of time traveling to India or was it was it enough to be surrounded by that family that was in Dallas? We traveled a ton because my mom was a software engineer for the airline industry. So back in that day, you could stand by for any flight for free. So we would like literally pack our bags and stand by for flights, knowing full well that we might just like take our bags home and not get to go on vacation but it also meant we got to go to places like Egypt and Greece and France like when I was a kid and my parents really had that travel bug and they did try to make sure that we went back to India every so often but I my dad thought that we would move back to India but I feel like my mom really didn't want to move back and so they kind of abandoned that idea early on but I don't think I don't think that my parents felt a strong pull back to India. And so I didn't feel a strong pull back to India. When we go back, we had family there, but most of our family had come to America. Delhi is very crowded and polluted. It it will always hold this charm to me, but I don't think that I ever romanticized India as sort of going back to the homeland or anything like that. And I think at a certain point, my dad told me, you know, I go to India and I no longer feel like it's home. Like we had all become so American that going back to India didn't feel like it was sort of this this big return. It's just felt like a foreign country. And I speak some Hindi, but my Hindi's not great. And so when I speak Hindi, it's like they can tell that I'm from America, even though I look Indian. So it got to this point where even when I went back to India, I didn't quite feel like I fit in there. I think that's so true because like, when I go to Turkey, I can't really speak any Turkish, but I look Turkish, so people will like babble away to me in the street and then I'm like, ah, ah, <laughs> <laughs> help. <laughs> um, and I think it's, you know, when you have that language barrier and then also when close family members like aren't there anymore, you kind of, I think you lose a lot of that pull. So like we would always go back to Turkey every summer to see my grandma and then when she died when I was like 11 years old that pull went away somewhat like there was still lots of family to see but like you know that core person was gone and that big reason to go was gone and so then we started going like other places my mom was like I love Istanbul but like I want to go to Spain (laughs) (laughs) 
And so, Priya, I know you've written a lot about this, but I really want to hear more about your experience, like growing up in Texas as a vegetarian when you're surrounded <laughs> by like barbecue, which I love your essay on this. It's so, it's <laughs> so much you. fun. And the food you ate and kind of the whole world you occupied within Texas where you had like all these family members and... Yeah. I mean, looking back, I truly feel like I lived in a bubble in so many ways. One, I was largely surrounded by the Dallas Indian community and that was what Dallas was to me. Dallas was home cooked Indian food. It was dal chowl at my mom's house, dosas at my aunt's house. Like, I don't even think I knew that Texas barbecue was a thing until like maybe my, my late teens. Um, <laughs> like Tex-Mex was the one thing we, we loved. I mean, I feel like those flavor profiles are so s- similar to Indian food. It's vegetarian friendly. Like. Because, you know, we were immediately on board. But barbecue was just not even something that was on our radar. And the other thing that was kind of funny is that the school that I went to was, like, the most liberal school in Dallas. You know, like, very, like, everyone voted Democrat. Like, I, at one point, I remember in elementary school, thought that Texas was a blue state. (laughs) It was just, like, a very, very limited upbringing. So it's so funny when I wrote that essay, it was sort of me coming to terms with the fact that I say I'm from Texas and people are like, oh my God, Texas. And they have all these notions of what Texas is. And I'm like, well, actually that really wasn't my Texas. Like what, whatever people think that a Texas upbringing might look like, mine was not really that. It's safe for Tex-Mex, I guess. Ever <laughs> way to paint your New Jersey to us. <laughs> My New Jersey was pretty diverse also, which I really loved. Also didn't realize uh, New Jersey had a bad rep for many (laughs) different things until maybe I was much older. But because it's so diverse, I was also surrounded by a very large Arab community, a very large Muslim community. Um, But growing up, my mom was very anti-eating out. She was very like, we are going to eat at home at all times of the day. And I used to be like, but I really want McDonald's. And my mom would be like, I'll make you fries at home. And I'm like, but it's not the same. And like, <laughs> it was just like not an option to the point that going out to McDonald's was fun. And I feel like it's something that I didn't appreciate at the time until I left home. Because now like I try very much, I like FaceTime my mom at least once a week and try to cook home-cooked Egyptian meals all the time, um, which tend to be very heavy and very hearty. My mom was a trooper. I don't know how she did it. Raising four kids, she was working two jobs at the time, and every day made a full-cooked meal, like a full spread of dinner. You had a carb, you had a vegetable, you had a protein, you had a salad, you had a minimum of two side dishes, like every single day. And I definitely took that for granted as a child. But It also meant that my mom, yeah, you don't appreciate until after you leave. And then like I see all the blood, sweat and tears that go into a lot of these traditional meals. And um, I like I come home and my mom be like, hey, do you want to go out for dinner? I'm like, no, but can you please cook? Like, can you just like make something? Um, so much so that I've, I've made it an effort to, I have like a little notebook. My mom used to have like a notebook in Arabic where she had a lot of the traditional recipes and she sat me down and made me make one. And so I sat down with her one day and like wrote all the traditional Egyptian recipes that she would make. And now I make it a point to make it at home. Like my husband will be like, 
this is so much work. Like, why are you still cooking? It's like 9.30 p.m. on a Wednesday. Like, we're going to go to bed, like, in an hour. And I'm just like, I don't care. Like, <laughs> I am making this food for the culture. Like, I need to preserve the culture. <laughs> um, Priya, how much of your upcoming cookbook has been formed from that conversation that you, you know, those conversations you have with your mom about her own Indian food? I mean, it's... 100% about that. It's about my mom's cooking, um, which is sort of this hybridized food that's mostly Indian with some of the countries that she's visited in America slipped in. The idea is that all the recipes are very one of a kind. They're very unique and they're super accessible because it's the cooking that she did when she immigrated here and she couldn't find all the ingredients she was looking for. So she did stuff like subbed out paneer for feta cubes she made pizza with roti and things like that and I, I definitely didn't appreciate it growing up I didn't realize how gifted my mom was in the kitchen how innate her sense of flavors were until I was really removed from the situation and I was working at a food magazine called Lucky Peach and I you know asked my mom for some recipes and submitted them to uh, our upcoming vegetables cookbook and the recipe developer were like, these recipes literally made me stop in my tracks. They were so good. And also your mom is a gifted recipe writer. Does she do this for a living? And I was like, no, she is a software engineer. <laughs> and that's when I started to think like, maybe there's something here. And it was actually the editor of the Lucky Beach Cookbook's idea for me to do a recipe around my mom's cooking. Cause she was like, these were the best recipes in the book. Yeah, my dad, you know, he can make a good omelette, but it doesn't really like <laughs> extend beyond that. But my my mum kind of took it upon herself to like learn to cook a lot of Turkish food after she married my dad. And she's always had like a huge love for the Middle East. So like had kind of added a lot of recipes to her like repertoire anyway. So she'd always make all this great Turkish food and then um, put it in my packed lunch for school. And I would like open up my packed lunch and all the kids would be eating like dairy cheese <laughs> and like peanut butter sandwiches and stuff and I would have like some chickpea thing <laughs> and I would be like mortified by it and I would be so envious of these kids that had like this like really shit packaged food and I'd be like I just want to eat that like why can't I be normal and I look back and it was the most like, amazing food but did you guys have the similar experience yes oh my god I demanded peanut butter and jelly sandwiches every day for lunch for 11 years <laughs> and and then and now when I go into the office at Bon Appetit once a week I proudly bring in my dal travel I have my little tomato salad sometimes my achar my chutney and I'm like so excited to be eating this food at Same. work. <laughs> Lunchables was my thing. I just saw kids have Lunchables yes. and I was just like, I want that. Like, this is what I want. And now um, I'm like, I've become the office food critic where we have like lunch catered and every so often we have Middle Eastern food and then I'll have uh, people next to me like eating the hummus and I'll be like, Ugh store-bought hummus <laughs> disgusting like you should try how my mother makes it and they'll be like dude like do you just want to bring it in I'm like no but I just want to let you know you're eating trash <laughs> like all of a sudden like I look back at myself and I'm just like where was this like 20 years ago <laughs> everyone should definitely go online and read Lale's like tear jerking donut kebab story because even though your dad can't cook necessarily <laughs> we'll throw him under the bus a little bit um like he has like given you this such an appreciation for a food that was really important to him that in your own british oh, way really? is also important to you yeah so i wrote about 
we just did this whole late night eats package. Everyone should read all of it. There's a lot of fun food stories to read about. But I wrote an ode to the Donna Kebab, which is, I think Rueda just discovered this. Yes. Is like Britain's favorite drunk food. Also, <laughs> over one million kebabs sold a day. Like, oh my God, that like that nugget blew my mind that I actually gasped and like looked up and asked people around me, like, did you know? <laughs> Crazy. Yeah, there's a um, annual British Kebab Awards, which is like thrown in a very like posh hotel, and <laughs> you know, and I, you know, I was like reading about it, and you hear, you know, you read the list of all the finalists, and it's like Ali's Donner in Manchester. And it's just like, oh, it makes me so happy. Um, but you know, it was like I, you know, th- through my adolescence, I would like start getting drunk and then I would eat a Donna kebab in Camden Market before getting the bus home and like not ever making the connection that like my dad had also grown up like eating these like much more beautifully prepared kebabs but like also having this like emotional attachment to it in a different way so I got to indulgently write 1300 words on that (laughs) last week and it, it is amazing I also second people should read it thank you Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? Or just a horrible accident. That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. I want to kind of go back to what you were saying, Lale, about being at school with other American kids and feeling self-conscious about your lunch. Because we were talking earlier about how you felt like everyone else got to go to these cool places like Florida, and which I laughed at, and you like had to go to Turkey or had to go back to see your family. And like meanwhile, I was like... I had to go to freaking Houston. <laughs> like, I was not having a great vacation either. Um, but no, I just thought that, do you feel like other kids at school, like when you were talking about Rowita, you know, moving back to Europe, was their experience so different from yours during the summer when they went on vacation? Or do you feel like it was just different places, but same, same? Yeah, no, I think I totally the relate of this idea of like wanting to go to Florida. Like people <laughs> would be like, I just came back from Disneyland. I'm like, oh, yeah, like, 
to this day, never been to Disneyland. Same. You would hate it, Lale. I know. You would hate it. I think it. it's my worst nightmare. <laughs> but it's like you want to go because yeah. that's what all the cool kids did. And then you have nothing to relate to. And you're just be like... I just saw the pyramids. Like, that's so boring, right? <laughs> and then, like, you, I look back at it now. I don't know. It just, it blows my mind, I think, not having enough friends who can relate to it. Um, also, I feel like the perspective of travel being seen as, like, a luxury, I think, was, it came to me much late because it wasn't so much of a luxury. It was a necessity. Like, it was a family yeah. obligation to go back. If you didn't go back, my parents didn't go back, their siblings would get very upset. Because um, oftentimes going back meant helping provide resources, right? Like being in the U.S. Be, meant you more often than not made more money than our family back in the U.S. And um, it was visiting our grandparents, which is um, obligatory in culture. Um, and if you don't do, again, family ties are very important. Um, and if it's not something that you actively upkeep, it can actually do a lot of damage. So I think understanding that weight of responsibility, I think, also came super early. And I didn't see that travel equated fun I think for a long time travel equated family responsibilities so then I just really wanted to go to Disneyland right for me my Disneyland was Atlantis the beach resort made famous by the Olsen <laughs> twins oh my god yes yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Uh, in Holiday in the Sun like everyone in my grade it seemed was going to Atlantis and Instead, we would be going to India or we'd going to Greece because my parents wanted to open my mind and all I wanted to do was ride the water slide Mary-Kate rides. In, just want to go movie. underneath the sharks. <laughs> yeah, I just and like, they to... had a they had a Jamba Juice at that Atlantis. Like, it seemed like the promised land. <laughs> I remember having age like seven having like a full da- blown mental breakdown in Istanbul because I didn't want to go over to like our beautiful family house on the Bosphorus to have some amazing dinner. I wanted to go to McDonald's. And I couldn't understand why we couldn't just go to McDonald's yeah. just down the street. Full-blown meltdown. I mean, God, I mean, it was amazing. My parents just didn't just leave me in Istanbul. Oh, gosh. So I just wanted to actually also ask, and Priya, you go first. What are your, like, crystal clear memories of going on holiday to India or like with your parents when they had such a travel bug what are those like early memories of it being introduced to you and being like oh it's kind of cool to be somewhere different um definitely most of them are food memories it's the first time I ate buttered toast with butchia which is this sort of like crispy fried potato snack at my aunt's house and then she made me Maggie noodles which are like Indians favorite like instant ramen equivalent and I was in heaven um, second thing was going to the Taj Mahal. That was like one of the first times when I traveled that I was like, oh my God, traveling is awesome. The thought like took my breath away when I was six years old. And the third thing was going to Kerala in Southern India. It was the very first time I'd gone to India, kind of as a tourist and where there weren't family obligations, we know no one in Kerala. So I got to really experience Kerala, not sort of having to go from family to family. It was just my family and me going to the beach and eating amazing seafood, or at least I was, my parents were not. And to this day, Kerala is one of my favorite places I've ever visited in the whole world. And I dream of going back. And do you think that um, you were aware of how special it was at the time? Or did you kind of take it for granted? India in general, I think I took for granted. But those two experiences, like 
Kerala and the Taj were both moments where I was like, oh, India is really cool. Rueda, what were your earliest memories of going to Egypt? And where in Egypt were you going? So my family was from Alexandria. And so it's this beautiful coastal city. People think Cairo is the place to be when you go to Egypt, but it's definitely Alexandria because it's a city and it's bustling, but the weather is always beautiful and the oceans are right there. And it's just this, this gorgeous city. And so our, my earliest memories, and these luggages are now banned or are not allowed, but way back when you were allowed to take these like huge luggages which were like the size of a dining room table and I remember my parents would pack two per person so if you were a two-year-old like you got two they're like okay we're counting two and they would take all these <laughs> luggages and the purpose was to buy a whole bunch of gifts right because like back in Egypt people loved American name products whatever even if they had the same thing they just they loved the idea so we'd pack it with Nikes we would pack it pack it with Victoria's Secret bras just like anything that was brand named and so like we would have like no space for us and all these gifts from my parents and I remember before we'd leave my mom would like go on this huge like shopping spree and I remember her asking me like hey what do you think of this for your cousin and this for your aunt and so there was this like pre-planning mindset before every single trip and every single trip we would need extra help we would never just go to the airport ourselves we'd have to find like more cousins and aunts and uncles to help us lug all this like <laughs> huge luggages that were probably like four times the size of an average human being and like definitely makes sense as to why they're banned now and we don't use them <laughs> um and it, it was just so ridiculous but I remember how much thought and love and compassion my mom put into everything and I think that really stuck out to me um and so when we got there to the airport, even though we were in Alexandria, we would most of the time fly into Cairo because the only direct flight from Egypt is from JFK, and it would only go to Cairo. And um, all my family would take the three-hour drive from Alexandria, and they would all meet us. And my first memory of really hitting that this was Egypt was the second you walk out of the airport, it's chaotic. It's like crazy. People are screaming. There are cab drivers who are trying to lure you in and like get all these tourists. I um, mean, I remember just being so overwhelmed by the amount of like noise and, and yelling and the chaos. And then just seeing like my entire 20 person like extended family, like shouting and screaming our names. Like we were like a basketball team just coming onto the court. <laughs> And I feel like I had never felt so, like, shocked, one, but also just, like, so seen and so loved in that way of people who I only see once every two years. And I think that really hit me. Um, and it made it sad for whenever I came back from vacation and then, like, you just fly back into JFK. And then, into like, JFK and, and there's like, no one. No and there's one. just one creepy man trying to make you get in <laughs> yes, his cab. And you're just like, I want more creepy men <laughs> <laughs> and, like, family. And so it was... The difference was like so stark in my memory that I think it like it never really went away. And I think um, it really hurt the most when I moved away from Egypt. I remember we had like a super early flight out of Cairo. So we had to leave Alexandria. It was like three, four o'clock in the morning. And um, my dad had like had a car rented with a driver. So we were packing all our stuff in the car. Um, and I was just like, oh, I feel like really sad now. And like I didn't see anyone. And then it was just me and my siblings and my parents. And then out of nowhere, 
all my cousins just like pop out of this car, like this tiny little car that probably doesn't legally fit more than four people. <laughs> and then like nine, ten of my cousins all come out and they're like, did you really think we'd let you leave without us like saying bye? And I think I started bawling because then it really hit me like the sense of family and community and the sending off and the receiving of family um, wasn't going to be there anymore. And I think that's when I think it really fortified travel for me because then I was just like, wait, I like I want to do this all the time. I, I want to be I want to have that receptive feeling again. And you definitely don't get it in JFK now. Got that feeling of like, I mean, it sort of counts for anywhere. But I remember like going on holiday to Istanbul in the summers and like when you like arrive in the airport. And you're suddenly like, I'm in a new place. Yes. It's so exciting and I just want to explode. And it was really funny seeing my husband, Chris, who Rowena knows very well because they work together. Yes, he's also my desk mate. <laughs> <laughs> and general annoyance. <laughs> Went to Istanbul last summer for the first time and he'd never been to the Middle East. And he was so, so excited. And I remember we like got off the plane in the morning and I think like five different flights from different parts of the Middle East had all landed at the same time as our one from um, New York and it was just like firstly like we stepped off the plane and immediately the airport smelled cigarettes and then it was just chaos and like yeah. no one was paying attention to the queue everyone was just like pushing in front of each other like and he was just like what is going on and I was like are you just in the Middle East yeah <laughs> nothing like, yeah, nothing <laughs> nothing is going like, on this is amazing. But, doesn't, but doesn't it feel so good to be in the know and be like what are you talking about this isn't like I've been doing this for years <laughs> like, what are yeah, you doing like, Chris chill. and then it was like two hours later and I was like get me out of this fucking queue <laughs> even though like I try my best not to romanticize traveling I think there is a little bit sense of relief when I do come back into the U.S. because we've spent so much time here just like okay this was beautiful and the food and everything and then um, like you stand on the line to get a cup of coffee and it takes you like an hour and a half and you're like okay I'm ready to go back like <laughs> this would have been much faster like I'm ready for people to actually start following driving laws right because that's like non-existent also in the Middle East. So I'm assuming then the driving in Egypt is similar to the driving in Turkey. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> not worse and so at that point you're just like you know what you can have home in that yeah. sense, but also like it also means that it's okay that I don't feel fully complete in one place, and I don't think I'll ever feel fully complete. I don't think if I move back to Egypt now, it'll be the same like it was when I was 10 years old, and I'm kind of okay with that because then I feel like this idea of like wanting to go back and forth forever is a good feeling. Well, and it's interesting because I feel like you, probably because you had that time living there, have felt like and both of your parents are from there, as opposed to one that like, you felt like I think a much stronger tie to Egypt than like I have to Turkey. You know, like born and raised in London, went there for holiday, but like I can't speak Turkish. And it's really only been like the last few years that I've started to kind of realize like, oh, half of me is actually from Turkey. <laughs> and like, this is cool. It's just so interesting because I still have that feeling when I do go back to Egypt, people won't, feel, like, they know that just even if it's not the language, because I speak Arabic fluently, but so the way you look, the way you're dressed, and then oftentimes if I need to pull out my American card, I will. Oftentimes it's when dealing with bureaucracy and, um, and immigration, you're just like, yeah, I got that American passport, right? And then, like, you come here and, like, people want to bad mouth the Middle East, and you're just like, well, actually, this country is so great after all. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, where are your loyalties? It's like, it depends on my mood. Yeah, completely. Is. Also the World Cup. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. No, it's like it was very easy for me because it was just England. But um, the rare times that Turkey qualify, then I have to choose. Fair. Do you guys feel like those early trips 
that you took home looking back now that you took them for granted or like those beautiful, like those times when you look back and you're like all those people showing up at the airport, that was fun. But like, I didn't really care that much when you were, you know, 10, cause that's allowed. Do you feel you took those times for granted? Yeah. I know for a fact I took them for granted because I actually haven't been to Egypt since I've moved back. And so it's been about 13 years or so. And so I feel like it hadn't really hit me in like um, a long time, even though the rest of my family all have been back. But I think every time I try to plan a trip, something happened where like I just couldn't go. But I'm planning to go in a few months. And I am extraordinarily nervous because I know things are going to be so different. I mean, politically, it's been different. We have gone through a revolution and then that revolution was crushed. And Family members have gotten older and married and have kids and some have passed away. And so I definitely didn't, I felt like, you know, that feeling when you're young and you're like, life is forever and I'm going to be young forever. So I think it was like, I'm going to be young forever in this country forever. And now that I'm an adult and I'm married and I'm, I have to visit my in-laws families there and um, see my old, like my family who have probably changed quite a bit, I think is scary. I'm a bit anxious, but also very excited. But I definitely have to remind myself quite often that like, okay, it's probably not going to be like what I thought it was or what I remember it to be. And so, um, but I kind of wish it, I did. And so I definitely think I took it those times for granted for sure. And Lala, do you feel like going back to Turkey those summers as a kid was a I mean, I think my behavior over McDonald's <laughs> is a clear-cut example clear of how example. much I took it for granted. I mean, I totally did. I, it was, you know, this like beautiful place. And I just like didn't pay attention to it. Like I just just sort of assumed, of course, that's this is where we go to like visit my dad's like aunt and uncle who have a parrot. Like, of course, <laughs> this is where we go. Um, I just want McDonald's. <laughs> yeah, I just want to go to McDonald's. Um, I want to play with your parrot. <laughs> I just want oh, McDonald's. God bless Sharky. God. He imitated you. Oh, it was amazing. He'd whistle songs. Oh, oh God. Oh. Um, but um, that's a real family memory, right? Yeah, there. no, it's like very Sharky very the parrot. Sharky the parrot, and also this distant cousin of mine, who was around the same age as me, and I was probably about eight years old pinned me up in the hedge and just kept on going English, English <laughs> to me until I cried. <laughs> oh my God. Oh my God. Family um, is family. God, families yeah. are just insane. <laughs> um, but I actually went back to Istanbul for the first time with my dad last summer in like, it was like 19 years. The last time we'd been there together was I was like 10 years old for a wedding and then we had like stopped doing these holidays and then I'd gone back once when like, and he'd been going all the time. Um, but I went back once when I was like 22 and then I went back last summer and it was amazing. And it was like, you know, we to what you were saying about how you're like kind of scared that it's going to be really different. And, you know, Turkey has also gone through a lot of political change. And um, I was also apprehensive about what it was going to be like when I went back and like, yeah, like some things are totally different. But also everything's like kind of the same. Mm. Like there are a lot of places that just like, I mean, obviously you can't compare Egypt and Turkey, but I don't know. There was just like an ice cream place that I would always go to that was still there. And like the crossing outside, um, you know, the um, house that we always go to was still crazy with the crazy drivers. And like it still felt the same place. Yeah, that's what I'm banking on. Yeah, And I feel like, 
hopefully that part will never go away. I think that's when you start to develop like love for a country in that sense, no matter what physical changes may be there. I think the emotional ties is the same. And I think it's, I mean, it's still pretty strong for, for myself. Um, and I think I rubbed off um, um, my husband, who is also natively Egyptian, but, you know, has never lived there or anything and had just gone there for a few summers to the point where he was just like, would you think about like moving there and like actually living there? And we had this conversation like seriously not too long ago. And we were just like, you know, if we were able to secure things financially that like we would. And I feel like it takes a lot of love to accept a country with all its faults and its fallacies. And I think also blows my parents' mind a little bit. Just like, we literally immigrated here for you and you're going (laughs) to go back. And we're like, yeah, you know, this is an open possibility to the point that we see it a part of our future, like a very strong part of our future. And I think that makes me excited. That is such a perfect place to wrap up this episode. (laughs) So, Rueda, when you go to Egypt in a couple months, where could people follow your journey? They can follow me on Twitter at Rueda underscore Abdel because Twitter won't fill my full last name. So just the four first letters, (laughs) A-B-D-E-L. Priya, where can people find you if they want to follow your writing? Uh, On Twitter and Instagram, I'm at P-K-Gourmet, G-O-U-R-M-E-T. Also, I have a website, priyakrishna.me. I just redesigned it, so, yeah. <laughs> Perfect. Lale? Uh, you can find me at Lale Hanna on Instagram. And I'm at Oh Hey There Mare on all the social medias. You can check out all those stories that we were talking about that Lale wrote at cntraveler.com and check out all of the stuff we're working on at cntraveler on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram and also all the social medias. You should also check out Roweda's work at Huffington Post and you can check out Priya's semi-weekly Indianish column on Bon Appetit. Thank you guys so much. Are you ever minding your own business when you start to wonder, how do killer whales work? Who are Hollywood's paparazzi? Did British sailors get it on in the 1800s with each other? I'm Jonathan Van Ness, and every week on Getting Curious, I sit down for a gorgeous conversation with a brilliant expert to learn all about something that makes me curious. Honey, we explore everything around here with scientists, historians, activists, entertainers, and other brilliant guest experts. You can join me every Wednesday for an all-new topic with an all-new expert on Getting Curious. Listen to Getting Curious wherever you get your podcasts.